0: Welcome everyone to an incredibly special Forgotten Feminists, where my special guest is the lovely Asra Nomani. And of course, Asra is not forgotten at all. Um, Everybody knows her. She has been a mentor and a heroine of mine for the longest time. She's in fact, one of the people who encouraged me to start getting, doing this work, being public, having the bravery to be public um Asra Nomani it is my absolute honor and pleasure to have you here today I am so excited to speak to you I am I am just I'm so excited to see you and we were just chatting about your hair and how beautiful and lovely it is and uh, we were actually a little bit late starting because we had (laughs) I got a little too excited over your butter blonde tell me all about
1: it my butter blonde hair Yes. What was the situation? You said there's a story behind it. There's a story for us everywhere we go about everything that we do. I mean, that is exactly why I wanted you to come out, you know, Yasmin, and speak publicly because in each one of our lives, there's a story. And so the story of my lovely highlights is this. So of course I am uh, at that point in my life where my natural highlights are something that I love this hairdresser called the other day wisdom highlights but I thought I'd go with this little butter blonde look um, a little while ago I'm sitting in the hairdresser's chair and talking to the hairdresser and he's just talking to me about things and oh I tell him I'm from Morgantown West Virginia and he said oh you know I have cousins there I'm like oh really tell me about that oh yeah my cousins are abu uh, abu labans i'm like the abu labans oh okay we never had this conversation <laughs> they are my enemy Oh, yes the abu labans own the uh you know underage bar that everybody knows about in a college town and the um the one of the godfathers of this clan was the man at the mosque who was the bouncer yes, to my mom and me, whenever we would show up to walk in through the front door and into the okay, main. Door. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You're telling,
0: you're telling too much. Cause I want to, I really have to get into that because that is one of that's, that's how I found you. That's how I discovered you.
1: But yeah. let us always be inspired by these highlights yes. and hear <laughs> these stories of treachery because we, we end up with beautiful highlights. Yes. That's at the end right. The so,
0: through the diversity like a Phoenix through the ashes you rise yes. <laughs> right. with your butter blonde highlights but yes. it look it's they, gorgeous, gorgeous as usual. Um, so I want to go back to that story that you almost started to tell before I cut you off. So one of the first things that I discovered about you and I think that there's two things about your story that just don't get enough attention they don't get enough. We don't talk about it enough. And there are two very, very important points. There are two very, very important feminist points that we need to discuss. Um, Now, when I first discovered you, and there's a lot of other, you know, reform Muslim women and ex-Muslim women who've had the exact same feeling as me, is when we read your story and we find out about how, like you were saying, you walked in through the front doors of the mosque not just the through the front doors of the mosque but without a hijab on like people cannot comprehend they are just like i don't get it it's just a door like if you walk in from a different door door of the church or the diff, a different door of a synagogue nobody's going to care so they don't understand the tremendous courage that it took for you to do that and how it made all of us women cheer with gratitude and excitement that you were willing to do that because I I was going to a mosque every single day of my life when I was going to an Islamic school that was in the mosque and I never in a million years would have even dared to consider going through the front doors. I have to walk through the, my brother can, all the males can, yeah, if you have a penis, you can walk through the front doors. Yeah. But everybody else, all the women and the girls, we had to go behind the mosque, past the dumpsters, in through the door that led to the kitchen. Yeah. So you tell have- me about your decision to enter a mosque through the front doors and what that has cost you.
1: Yeah, you know, that was a long journey that I had before I had even come to that place where I was standing in front of this green door in Morgantown West Virginia. At that point I was 38 years old. I had uh, you know lived my life here in the United States as a woman's rights person, you know an activist, a feminist. I, I was born in India to a Muslim family. My mother had been born into that conservative interpretation of Islam where she wore the full burqa as a girl. My mother's story is that she dared to take her burqa off when she walked into the women's college in Bombay and the driver ratted her out. And my mom had to finish that little part of her education and then summerly get married off to my dad who had as uh, his mother, a real feminist who had also, she dared to take off her burqa in our village back in India. And so my mom ended up, you know, being a woman that all of you would love, you know, the mother yeah. that every single one of you would have just cherished, because she took all my crazy questions as a kid, you know, she, every once in a while she would say chup, you know, which is in Urdu, in Hindi, it's just be quiet, be quiet now. <laughs> um, so, she tells her such funny stories about all those questions that I asked, you know, that were just inappropriate. Why does my brother get to play outside when I don't get to play outside in back in India? Why are there no women prophets? Why are we always learning about the male prophets? But she she listened to it all. And, um, and my dad, too, he's the one who drove me as an 18-year-old in our Subaru to New York City for an internship for the first time, Yasmin, you know, the, he, he escorted me and dropped me off at a women's, um, hotel, you know, it was mm. a place that he couldn't even enter, but he, he let me go, you know, like, that's what, I just want to tell that backstory because I had that with me mm. in you my foundation. Heart. Yeah. Mm. As I stepped in front of that door. And so I, that's why I'm so happy, I'm so honored to talk to you and all of our fellow sisters and brothers too who join us who have left Islam because I understand how inhospitable the culture can be, even our families to these questions that you have just naturally had about the religion and that then I I have always felt like the, biggest um, impediment you know to anybody staying in the religion is like a lack of compassion for these questions so I, I just wanted to tell you that as I stood in front of this green door and, and my little baby Shibley was had mm. been born a year earlier and I didn't have a wedding ring on um, so again breaking a taboo in our faith but my parents were there for me like they my dad still had the paint on his nails, building this extra room in his house for Shibley and me to have a safe place in this world. So that's the family that I have. And that's the strength that I stood there then. And I saw this man and his, um who's an Egyptian uh, American elder. And he said, sister, take the back door. And the uh, back, exactly like you, you described, it was um, the stairs, the dumpster. It was mostly locked, you know, because, again, uh, inhospitable to women. And uh, that day I wore a hijab. I wore the exact headscarf that I had worn in Mecca when I had done the pilgrimage with my son and my parents and my niece and nephew And it was that one, you know, with the opening, like you just put your head in the opening, right? And then it cascades Mm -hmm. over your shoulders, white, you know, for that virginal look, right? (laughs) (laughs) And Mm -hmm. Yasmeen, it's exactly what you said. It wasn't just about a door. It wasn't just about a step that I would be taking forward or backwards. It was about a real consciousness of, about the kind of Islam that I wanted to see in the world, about whether I had the inner fortitude to take then the response that was gonna happen. And and in that moment, um, I just knew I had to walk forward. And that's when I mm-hmm. stepped forward. And then it was a few months later that, we had this historic prayer in which a woman led men and women in prayer, a woman named Amina Wadud. And mm-hmm. yeah, and I had found a gallery in New York City to host this prayer, but they uh, canceled because they got bomb threats. And then I found a church, St. John the Divine, up on the Upper West Side. Oh, and- the irony. Yes, the irony is, like and this is the place that you know you you'd like it. They um they have the special day for pets, right? Where they pets get pets. yeah, love it. Yeah, exactly. Who doesn't like that? Um. So yes, I mean, I had um plan to wear a scarf that day. You know, because that's what we're taught, right? Like that's what. Mm-hmm. Rained in us, though I was asking all these big questions, bringing a woman forward as an imam to men and women, allowing in this space then men and women to pray wherever they wanted to pray, and the women could be in the front row. I was still holding on to that last vestige of control, which was this piece of cloth over our head. And it was that morning then that I said to myself, Wait a second, I don't believe in the interpretation of Islam that says that I, as a woman, have to wear a scarf in order to be pure. So why do I want to take away that belief in this moment of prayer, right? Like, mm. why do I, in prayer, all of a sudden, I have to have this special shield around me. And so that was the big day. And my mom, I was on the phone with her. And of course, she's like, Asra, really? Like, you have to go there, you know? (laughs) So she didn't believe it either. But, you know, she knew the implication. And sure enough, um, I was there with just a few other women. Um, People know Mona um, Mm El-Tahawi, you know, controversial in her own way, um, both, you know, amongst in our our community and outside. And uh, she didn't wear her headscarf. And sure enough, our picture was then posted on the Islamist websites with little circles around our head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because like
0: bullseyes
1: almost. Yeah. 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 But that was the moment. It was March 15th, uh, 2005. And that was a moment when I personally recognized how sacred and powerful this weapon was for the Mm -hmm. Islamists, you know, and the Muslim extremists and the. And you know, as you know, even the you know establishment Muslims as a mm-hmm. device over our uh, our lives as women, and um, it didn't take it took me another decade to write a article challenging the idea that the headscarf is mandatory in Islam. But Yasmeen, that's exactly why all of us, I want to tell you this message as your mentor, stay healthy because it's a yeah. long, it's a long war yeah. we're in. And I'm I'm giving you like all the years of this struggle because mm-hmm. what you may do today, like will define another stance you will take in a decade, 20 years from now. And it's going to be pivotal and important for the mm-hmm. changes that you want to see.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely believe that you are planting seeds for trees that you will never eat the fruit from those trees. You will never sit in the shade of those trees. You're not doing this expecting to see, you know, vast changes in your lifetime. You're doing it for the future. But yeah. having said that, there still have been vast changes in your lifetime. The, when you you mentioned standing at those green doors, at that mosque on that very first day when you were told to get to the back, go to the back door, basically get to the back of the bus. And you went from that, and instead of somehow um, cowering away from that and feeling like this is too big of a mountain, I, you know, I'm just David and this is Goliath, I have to walk away. Your response <laughs> was to get a female imam. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so you were like, Oh, the back door. Hey, is that where you want to meet? Okay. Watch right. this. Yeah. <laughs> you if, know, you
1: can just imagine all the, like all the bros, right. The, the Muslim bros that were hating on me. They were like, that was her plan all along. And I was like, no, dude, I actually just wanted to
0: inspire like, this.
1: Yeah, you they don't realize like how much action they foment with their hostility to reform and to change and to just common sense. Uh, and, and, so you know, they they write these chapters and they don't even realize it because they reveal how strongly they hold these ideas of really seek to control other people right like that it's all about yeah that's how firmly they are and the the harder they resist they reveal how important these ideologies are in as levers in people's lives that deny fundamental human rights and and that's why I just I just you know so um you know it was lonely it was a such a lonely battle uh, my mom was with me all the time, every day, every mm-hmm. Friday that we would go to the mosque and I would claim my space then at the Jum'a prayer. My mom was beside me, you guys. She would wear uh, hoodies. <laughs> so great. She would wear hoodies. One of them, my favorite was has had Brooklyn across the front. My nephew's hoodie. She just like take it off his hanger and wear it with me. Mm-hmm she didn't go for the prayer. Like, this is what you guys will love. Like she went there because she didn't want me to be alone. You know, she didn't want me to sit there alone because then what the men would do, what they do, which is surround me and, and, intimidate you and and intimidate. And, you know, as you know, with prayer, we're like, I'm sitting on the ground, they're standing above me. At that time, we didn't even have, I like the phones were not, you know, uh, our weapons at that time. Um, I didn't think of body cams and all this stuff like you just had your voice and Mm -hmm. um and they uh the other thing that you guys will love is that we refused that interpretation that we have to have be sitting in the back row because the back row was like beneath the balcony where the women were and it was literally in the shadows and we would go into the middle of the hall and they'd have to like Assemble around us, and I was always, <laughs> there. yeah, I was always there earlier to claim my space because there is this hadith or saying of the Prophet Muhammad that, um, and I know not everybody here thinks of him as a prophet, but nonetheless, um, he, that you know whoever arrives arrives, and that if the men, the tradition in the seventh century was that late arriving men would pray behind the women. There wasn't this idea that like a woman just has to keep shifting back, you know, until mm. she... and my mom was so awesome because she's like, they, they kept telling us like we had to pray with our back to the wall and my mom's retort mm. to, the, to the, the guy another Egyptian American I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Yasmin. Uh, I mean, Mark. I already know what Egyptians are like. I know. I'm fully
2: I know. aware. But,
1: <laughs> but I will I will give a shout out to my first Sunday school teacher. He was an Egyptian-American named Dr. Daher, And he took all my questions. He always answered oh. my questions. Um, but my mom would say to them, why don't you just dig a hole, shove us in it, and stone us to death? Because she got, oh. yeah. She just gave it to them. And um, and that's that's the um, you know, that's the support that I want all of you to know and feel in this world as you're having questions. I know you may not be in the mosque challenging these men, but like as you're going through life, like I want you to know that same kind of community. And that's why I'm so I so believed in you, Yasmin, from the beginning in creating this kind of community and and you know um you guys you guys are the the worst nightmare for these yeah. establishment muslims because mm-hmm. as they say you don't um you know care about losing face in the community mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you uh you are the honey badgers of the muslim community
0: yes, that's right my mom already threatened to kill me so what's there's nothing there's nothing more beyond that right yeah, so it's kind like, of like well, very- it's, you know, the difference between our moms is, you know, night and day. So that's really a, a significant part of this story, too. Is I remember when I met Rahil Reza for the first time. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of nervous because I'm, I meet, she's a woman who knows how, you know, she knew all about my activism and I knew she was Muslim and I didn't know how she was going to respond to me. And she, reached out and gave me a hug and she was telling me that she has, um, gosh, I'm gonna tear up again, but I was bawling when I met her. And I sent to her through like, you know, choking back tears. I said, if I'd had a mother like you, I don't know if I would have left Islam. Mm -hmm. Because a part of it, a huge part of it was exactly what you said. A huge part of it was that they just, push you out with because they're so aggressive they're so intolerant they're so unbending unwilling to even acknowledge you know the questions that you're asking let alone respond to them you know so it it was just I grew up in such a a staunch fundamentalist environment where you know the the old description right that you can see on the big billboards in iran with a a tightrope and the tightrope is going across and there's he- <clears throat> excuse me hell is b- beneath you below you and you have to walk this tightrope a al mustaqim the long thin straight road and if you don't navigate yourself and balance yourself so carefully you fall into the depths of hell and that's what it's like the smallest tiniest little infraction and that's it yeah. you are you are nothing and the hijab is quite often for women that is the thing right. because it's exactly what you identified control That's what they use to control a woman. And when she takes it off, she's saying it's like removing shackles, right? Removing handcuffs. I am I will not be controlled. And oh, my God, do they hate that?
1: I'm wondering when you heard the story uh, of when you were growing up, did you hear that story of that bridge being a strand of hair? Oh, uh, no, I didn't. But that's that's uh, makes sense. Yeah, well that's, I, I'll never forget the moment that I heard that story, and it was actually my mother who told me that story, and I was 10, I was living in the, we were living in this efficiency, well, it wasn't the efficiency department, sorry, the faculty apartments in Morgantown, West Virginia, literally, you guys, a block from the mosque. So the mosque had behind it um, the, so in between us was the McDonald's. Like this is such a classic American town <laughs> story and and the Pierpont house. And that's going to be a, another little story for, for us in a second. But I was in the apartment complex. My mom was teaching me my Arabic and I was reading the Quran. And then she's telling me this story. And I was like horrified, right? I was horrified by this nightmare of a, of a reality. And the other part of it was the hellfire below you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, But I I heard it and my mom told it to me as a strand of hair. And I think that's really important as uh, in my own life, because I then began to realize, wow, so a strand of hair is, you know, then our, uh, you know, uh, division, you know, between a life of ascension and the depths of hell. And that's exactly right. What they would. I did hear that. Yes they pummel you with that then when you Mm -hmm. show a strand of hair, like -hmm. as, yeah, as if you're making a decision that will send you to the depths of hell and, and any man who dares to look at that strand of hair. But, um, but yeah, my, I, and I, you know what, and the best part is like, I asked my mom many years later, like, why did you even tell me that story? (laughs) You know, it was such a horrible Mm -hmm. story. And she said, you know, it's the indoctrination. Like she, she, while being a purveyor of it was recognizing it like that. And, and I love that. Like, I love that. That's the other beauty of just staying healthy, you guys, and, um, and being healthy in in your families, if you can be, because it takes a while to have those conversations too. And I don't know that you can all have those conversations with folks with whom you've had conflict and, um, and a lot of this tension that you're talking about, Yasmin, but but the, life is beautiful when you can kind of keep growing together and and um, and that's been really fun for my mom and my, my dad too.
0: That's beautiful. I mean, it's it's absolutely wonderful and it it gives me hope for humanity and that you know you're raising Shibley to be a such a responsible, wonderful young man. I mean, we've had a conversation before about how he is with his girlfriend and how proud that makes you as a mom. And that's exactly, you know, that's what we can do sometimes is n- I've, not in your case, but like in my case, you can take the negativity. I can take the, uh, you know, all the childhood trauma <laughs> and I can turn it into raising my daughters to be free, wonderful, you know, passionate, beautiful human beings moving forward in their lives. And then it cleanses me it heals me of the past and and really that's that's all we can do yeah um, but you- speaking
1: of Shibley, yeah. I do I want to talk be-
0: a little bit
1: I was just going to say I just wanted to get this thought out there just because mm. I think oh um I think it's been your story and my story uh that we have this common friend Orly Petter a psychologist yes. And it was Orly who introduced me to this concept that we can have post-traumatic growth. And I just wanted to introduce that idea to people if they hadn't heard it already, because as you're moving forward in your lives, it's always nice to know that concept and the concept of neuroplasticity, which means brain can keep recovering and healing. And so- all that you might have experienced in the past can uh, just be, you know, part of a future in which you uh, know a different reality, and and there's hope. So I wanted to. Yeah. Share.
0: No. Thank you so much, Astrid. I appreciate that. And yes, I I agree completely with you, and that that is what keeps me going because there there were times when I felt like, am I ever going to get past this? Am I ever not going to find latent bits of indoctrination within me and be horrified by it. Um, but yeah, you it, neuroplasticity, exactly what you said, you just have to keep picking it out and, and you know, reprogramming um, your brain, cleansing it, I like to to call it, um, from all the dark past. And then once you get to a point where you feel safe and strong enough, that you can actually start to support others and reach your hand forward like you have done. And that's why I'm doing this work. And then I I'd like to think that from my work, I've also encouraged other people to come forward. You know, it's that ripple effect. Yeah. Um, But of course you have to get to a position where you yourself already feel like you're um, strong and healthy and ready to do that. Because like you said, this is incredibly difficult work i think that some people can so, sort of um understand that kind of just on a intellectual level but it's really difficult for them to understand that the way you and i do at such a deep emotional psychological level how difficult this work is and and the fact this is why i'm I praise people like you and Ayon and Masia Linajet and people that have been doing this for so long because I wonder, you know, if it wasn't for you being the example for me to continue going, <laughs> it's so difficult. Like you, so often, you just want to throw your hands up in the air and walk away and say, you know what, I'm I'm just going to live my own life with my with my husband and my girls and my dog and have some peace and and not be involved in this work at all anymore. Um, yeah. But the way Ion said it is you're compelled to do it. You have a responsibility to do it because you know of, of all the other people that are silenced and who truly cannot speak up, but we are privileged to be in the West. Um, and so that alone is enough for us, to, you know, gives us the freedom that so many millions of other people don't have. And so that's why we, we have to keep pushing forward regardless of, of how difficult it is. I agree. Yeah. So um, I want to go back a little bit to your time in Pakistan. Uh, you were there with one of your colleagues, Danny Pearl. Um, and I want to ask you about your experience with Islamic terrorism, your very close encounter with, uh, with Islamic terrorists can you please tell us about that
1: yeah so some people may wonder what is it that i saw when i stood at that green door and i had on my hips as i said my son he was just a year old at the time and he was an expression for me of the future that i wanted to build but there was a past that i had that was a clarity For me. And in that was this image that I had of my dear friend Danny Pearl. I saw Danny's face because in Danny's face is a man who was a smiling, beautiful human being who was the kind of guy that would be anybody's friend, you know, in the workplace, the guy that everybody had a crush on, you know, the, (laughs) yeah, you know, that kind of person, right? And he was such a great, great friend to me as an immigrant Muslim girl to the United States. I met him when I was 20, uh, see, about 28 at the time. And I was in the Wall Street Journal's D.C. Bureau. And so remember I told you guys about learning about that strand of hair and the falling to yeah. the of hell as a 10-year-old? Well, like most of you, you know, I grew up then even though my parents were very enlightened about things with the traditional boundaries between boys and girls. I wasn't allowed to go to the Friday night dance. I got asked to the prom and asked me, and I, my response to this boy named Steve Newcomb was, I can't, and everybody here will understand that response. It's like, what, you can't? Like, you don't have a car? No, I can't go. And so I never went to my prom, and I met Danny at the age of 28, uh, we became fast friends in the newsroom. He learned that from me. I told him I didn't have my prom, so I had kissed a guy. I had had a boyfriend. At at that between the uh, mosque and that home that we'd lived in was also this apartment complex called Pierpont House, and I had met a guy in Arabic class, of course, in West Virginia, and you know fallen in love, and I was dating him secretly, of course, the secret lives of Muslim girls. And I had my first kiss there, you guys, right in the shadow of the McDonald's and the mosque. It's just so, it's only a small town story. You know, you can just imagine. So there I am at 28 then, and and Danny helps me throw my first party ever. And we call it a midsummer night's prom. So at 28, I had my first prom. And yeah, and you understand, you understand like the completion that I felt just uh, Mm -hmm. both development, both, you know, culturally, but also developmentally because Mm -hmm. so so many develop, that's one of the things that I really came to recognize is that in that rigid culture where we have such strict boundaries that are unhealthy, we don't have normal, psychological development and being able to then make good, wise choices for boyfriends or spouses or partners, whatever our partner may be. Um, So there we were, great friends. And then fast forward many years, 9-11 happens. Danny is living in India with his now wife, Marianne, and I'm in Morgantown on book leave. We both make the same decision as a lot of journalists to go to Pakistan where we later find out that you know the whole cell to launch the 9-11 attack was saying well I ended up falling in love because I took too seriously that patch of my childhood that it said make love not war so (sighs) you're going to relate to this story too that like I was I was trying to you know, mate and and partner with the man that I thought my family wanted me to be with. You know, so
3: mm.
1: I a Pakistani Muslim man. He was liberal enough that he was dating me in Karachi, but still I thought, oh, he's the right race, he's the right religion, you know, speaks Urdu. And um I, I rented a home in Karachi and um And Marianne and Danny had both met my boyfriend and they didn't think he was like a great choice for me, which is, again, typical of, you know, us when we don't learn how to make great choices. So they were coming to check things out and Danny had this big interview. And so on January 23rd, 2002, it was this, um, you know, moment that is seared in my my memory and uh, I was outside my home. These, this like beautiful family of parrots were circling overhead, making their song. And it was a, such a bright, bright, sunny day in Karachi. It had, we hadn't had rain in weeks. Danny was fumbling. He was always fumbling with things. Um, and he slipped into the taxi that I had called and I just waved to him and said, see you later, buddy. But he never returned. We waited and waited that night went into his laptop and tried to call the fixer that had arranged this interview for which Danny had left. And so Yasmin, it was there then that I then a few days later, we learned that Danny had been kidnapped and held at gunpoint in shackles. The photos arrived that are called sign of life photos. And it was there, you know, that I, as a Muslim, saw firsthand for the first time in my life, the most dangerous, in, in, you know, manifestation of this extremism within our faith that says you can murder. and uh, and that was the just clarifying moment for me, you know, to this day, as I stood in front of that green door, always seeing the beaming smile of Danny, you know, not those images of him in captivity. And then later, five weeks later, uh, these police officers and FBI agents came to my front door and they told Marianne, this man named Captain told Marianne, I'm sorry, I couldn't bring your Danny home. And yeah, and it was there then that we learned that i said how do you know like we saw a video i'm like could be a fake how do you know and the uh regional security officer took me aside the council general took me aside this man named john bauman and he said astra we know because they beheaded him no yeah and they they are so sick that they put their finger. I've never spoken about this actually, I mean, I knew that something would, would emerge in this conversation of ours because of our closeness, but they put on his final moments of pulsation. I can't even say life, but just pulsation, their finger so that you could see the blood pulsating in his veins here and that movement, you know, confirmed that this was not just digitized and and uh, a clip job but that this was his life you know in those last seconds and um and then that was just the cruelty the worst form of cruelty in the name of the faith in which i was born and um and then i learned i learned this horror this horror that all of you will understand like you understand this very deeply like this is what you know without even knowing it they scrubbed the floor in this safe house that they had taken over in the outskirts of Karachi they scrubbed the floor and with water buckets of water washing away the blood but of course it 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 remained and then they laid out their janamas their prayer rugs, in the direction of Mecca, to bow their heads, to bless this act, right, to lay their claim to their uh, faith, interpreted in this cruel way, and um, and dang it, that was like, you know, the moment, that was that, knowing all that, that I, I chose my path was to challenge them every single day of my life and that interpretation because I had had this moment a couple of years earlier where I'd met the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama enters into this. Um, Danny, Danny knew the story. I met him in the banks of the um, Ganges River in Allahabad, which is one of the cities featured in this Oscar music, you know, movie the Nacho Nacho song and um, and RRR, this movie. And there I was and the Dalai Lama had said, spoken about conversion. And he said, you know, what I encourage people to do is to find peace in the faith in which they were born. And uh, instead of converting out, of course, leaving is an option that many of you have chosen. But that was when I was, most in conflict, you know, in the most intimate, personal way possible with this religion into which so many of us were born. And my path then at that moment became of reform, you know, of just, just destroying, you know, um, in the court of public opinion, really, that's what we have to do, uh, win in the war of ideas against this, this doctrine of, Extremism, and I appreciate so much the support of Yasmin, folks like you, and Ion, and uh, others that have chosen to leave the faith. For those of us that are still struggling to, you know, challenge the the, the religion's worst interpretations, um, because I know you've given up on that that effort. But the fact that you support us in trying to do it is, you know, so positive because. They're still going to keep slaying Dannys, You know, they're still going to keep killing young women who don't believe the Islam that they demand, and that's what's happening. You know, from the streets of Iran to the the souls, you know, in North America that get slain every day in the face of that kind of dogmatism. So it's Danny's face that it gives me the courage always because I see in his departure from this world, the cost to humanity. If we don't take on that responsibility, like you just described to manifest a different reality.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm really, it was so dark and terrible to even just listen to you talking about this. So for you to have experienced that, to go through that and to to come out the other side, feeling like you want to be a force of good to try and counter this evil um, is really inspiring to me. Um, I, as you mentioned, I'm one of those people where I just felt like I have no there was I I I there was no single valid reason for me to have any kind of um allegiance or loyalty to this religion that has brought me nothing but turmoil and shame and anger and trauma and I see it happening to so many people around the world and it just it just the more it just makes me feel um it just made me feel like I want nothing to do with it you know so there is a there is an intense strength in you saying no I'm gonna stay here I'm gonna weather this storm and I'm gonna try at my best you know until my last breath because I'm inspired by my friend, Danny um, to try and and work on this and to try and, and fix this. And that is the, you know, in, in your, in the description for this talk, that's why I described you because you're, you are a tiny woman of tiny stature, but you do take on these massive, massive Goliath Issues And obviously, Islamic extremism, like, there's nothing, you know, that could be more dangerous for you to take on. Um, And what's really interesting through this book that you have written, this latest book that you've written, because you're the author of many books, um, which is called The Woke Army, is you talk about the intersection between really two Goliaths the huge issue of Islamic extremism, and then the huge issue of really secular extremism, which is also happening in America, um, and the intersection between those two groups. So I know what inspired you to fight one of these Goliaths, but talk to me a little bit about what what got your attention with the, the woke brigade and what made you decide that you also wanted to take on that fight as well as if you didn't have enough on your plate?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, everybody is going to understand this so clearly in in this community that we've got, because you all understand that it's not just about a religion, right? Like it's about indoctrination, right? And an ideology that reads sectarianism like that you that I know you can see beyond just you know the ayahs from the Quran that we read that are just convenient vehicles for creating sectarianism the acts of violence like Danny's brutal murder that they perpetuate because extremism and sectarianism come in so many forms well you know behind me is my books organized chronologically of course and at the top is hinduism and buddhism and then christianity uh judaism then islam and behind me is an entire shelf of the extremist interpretation of islam that we've all been studying and that we know about and in there is the people who challenged it also like fatima mernisi whom i had the joy of meeting in Rabat, Morocco, and was very inspiring in my efforts to then get educated about a new interpretation of Islam. But over here, you guys, on this shelf is the new religion, you know, this new secular religion, just like this beautifully described, Yasmin, of this um, far left extremism. People call it with different names, um, cultural Marxism, some people call it uh, some people call it socialism today. Uh, others call it wokeism. You know. Uh, so the the book, just like you said, it's a very subtle cover. <laughs> the crescent and star, right, of Islam. The extremists is whom I'm ca- capturing here, and then the hammer and sickle of the far left, and we call it the woke army because they work like an army in society so what happened for me and and this is where i want to just also tell you all the courage that you're building you know and the skills that you're building to be voices for good in the world like it may not manifest in our muslim community you know and on the issue of religion it could be about anything It could be you as a parent advocating for the ousting of a principal who is bringing, you know, um, just chaos into your school. It could be to get rid of the gas station that's down the road, that's doing whatever to your neighborhood. And that's what happened in the summer of 2020. For me, you know, after having had 18 years of fighting the extremists within Islam, I ended up confronting a, this new extremism that was called you know, social justice completely on steroids. I always considered myself a social justice warrior. We're fighting for women's rights. I called myself progressive. And all of a sudden, these activists were hijacking those terms. And what they were doing is they were coming after the kids in America's schools. Um, And the example that I'll tell you that happened to us then as parents is that little boy that I brought into the world, Shibley, he was uh, really strong in math and science, and he tested into this magnet school that we've got in Northern Virginia called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, In Northern Virginia, we have a lot of diaspora that have come to this area for technology jobs. So it's been a magnet for those adults. And then those adults, kids gravitate toward those fields. They're good in them. So 2020, the demographic at TJ was 70% Asian, 10% other minorities, and then 20% white. I walked into that school and I saw and felt diversity like I had never experienced, except when I'd gone to Little India, you know, in Chicago. There was sugarcane juice at the PTA meetings, there was biryani on back to school night. It was just so festive with the cultures of 30 countries from which the students' families had come. But guess what? This principal, and she happened to be white, and it race shouldn't matter, but now everything was about race. She told us, a mostly minority community, you know, and you guys have heard, you've heard in my story, all that, I mean, just, if you had a glimpse, you know, into what my family's experienced, but she stood there from her place of quote privilege to tell us about the privileges that we needed to put a check on in our lives. And then she told us that we needed to change the racial demographic at the school to match the racial demographic of the county. So that's something that's called racial balancing. And it's illegal in the United States of America, because we have this beautiful concept in democracies of equality, and that you should have equal opportunity. But what was entering in what was being ushered in is this new era that we have now seen unfold over the last 3 years where the K through 12 schools are the new battlefield for this woke army in trying to put put in place a new religion that has created a new hierarchy of human value and all of you are going to understand this very clearly that that is a new sectarianism you know it now separates people by these categories of oppressor and oppressed and it's putting into the hands of little babies the indoctrination and and this like you guys know so deeply like you understand exactly how i understood this because you went to the sunday schools you went to the madrasas you know these mm-hmm. religious schools where the indoctrination was intended for your very vulnerable minds as children and so this is just like one example yes mean of one of the mm-hmm. books woke baby they're going after the kids with these little beautiful cardboard books and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're using the big ideas of the bible their bible is this red book called critical race theory this is their bible for their new religion and in it asians become white adjacent jewish israelis become white supremacists an atheist becomes a um you know islamophobe Uh that's And they use race. Everybody knows this. They've been the targets of it. When you challenge Islam, they call you racist because Mm -hmm. they have racialized Muslims and used this as their shield for their bad ideas. And that is exactly what I document in the book, you guys, is case after case after case of how the far left and the Islamists an unholy alliance of conflicting ideas have come together to fundamentally challenge freedoms that we have in the West. And they are what? You guys know it well, free speech, right? The right to leave a religion, the right to dress how you want to dress, the right to your own free thought. And that is... um, that is like, it was the 20 years before that gave me the courage, you guys, to become a leader in this movement that we call the mama bear movement. Um, and this is what I want just, to just share with you is I had my mom, my mom, the mama bear in my life with me at the mosque, but you all know it's a lonely, lonely battle. Um, there's a reason why my my second book is called Standing Alone in Mecca. It's mm-hmm. like I knew that there were two million other people around me, but you're standing alone like many of you do. But I've now found this community, just like the community you're building, Yasmin, of like-minded people who have so much courage that and um and I just want to share that with all of you because you may not feel that community in one part of your life. And then you'll find a cause or a, a purpose in which suddenly you find others that have also gone down this path and and made their own choice. They face their own green door, you know, and they yeah. dare to step forward. And, and so that's the that's the battle we're in right now. Um, and you know this very well, the Islamists are using Islamophobia to shut us up. And unfortunately the far left and including in the United States, the democratic party is, have given them shelter. And, and that is that is the alliance that we, we can uniquely challenge. Like we have the authenticity and we give um, permission to so many others, who are afraid of taking on the woke army. So you are so necessary in this battle.
0: So before we go on to talk about what you identified there, which is the intersection between Islamists and the far left woke ideology, um, I just wanna clarify. So what happened was that the principal of your school, even though you were 70% Asian, she started to identify those asian kids as white kids yes. and so that was problematic
1: yeah because what is she doing i mean a, a so called liberal culturally um you know diverse individual is now whitewashing an entire community right and that's what they do they they uh forget you know their own values and that's why the we feel so many people who have been classic liberals feel abandoned, you know, by political parties and establishments too. I used to love the American Library Association, but they're in bed with the Islamists now, you know. Mm-hmm. The, there's just these unholy alliances that include then this principal, who uh, was parroting the new uh, racism of this woke army that deems Asian kids as white and separates those kids then from opportunities. You know, that's the big Mm -hmm. fundamental legal battle. It is illegal to be discriminatory. Like that's what you all know. And that is why you refuse the interpretation of Islam that exists in so many mosques around the world that create separate and unequal conditions, right, for women. That's That, that fundamental idea of civil rights is now suddenly being enshrined in policies across the country with so-called affinity groups that separate people by race, by sexuality, mm-hmm. by gender, separating <laughs> and segregating. Yeah. People.
0: Yeah. The the assumption that because you are white or because you are Asian or because you are Jewish or then therefore you don't deserve the leg up that we're going to give to these other different groups, like it really is the sec- sectarianism that you've been describing. Mm. It really is the us and them and yeah. the, the other, it's just othering people. Right. And not only is it dangerous, obviously top down because of all of the policies and because of, I know we don't have time to get into all of the many details, but there was you know certain awards that kids weren't even getting anymore because their skin wasn't the right color. All of those things are problematic, but then what also ends up happening is you're encouraging the children to start seeing each other as others and to spend you're you're creating racism you're creating these little cliques and groups of kids who start to see you no know, you're not one of us you're not part of our group you're part of
1: that group i want to share this book because we have seen it as muslims and now ex-muslims many of you in manifest in many ways Yasmin, yes, I mean, you remember, um, you can't, us as women, we can't marry non-Muslims, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you're from Egypt. Oh, you can't marry somebody who's Pakistani. Like sectarianism, division. Mm. I remember meeting these Sunni-Shia. So shia these girls from Qatar I met, and they couldn't marry outside of their tribe. Yeah. So this, yeah. is, this is the new sectarianism. This is a book that is read. In public schools in the United States. It was found by a mom in a Pennsylvania school district. It's called Not My Idea, a book about whiteness. Okay. So you could you could substitute whiteness with anything that you and I have ever heard in division. And it's supposed to sensitize children to racial issues. But I want to take you to the final, one of the final ideas that they share. This is, again, the use of religion. Whiteness is a bad deal. Oh, And the little caption here says, dude, we can see your pointy tail. The devil. So the devil, religion. This is religion being used. And what is burning? The $20 bill and a contract binding you to whiteness. You get stolen land. Stolen riches, special favors. Sign below for anybody who, who is white. This is the shaming of children, children who are white. You put this book in, in a Pakistan, and it could be a book about Shiism, you know? And yes. You, yes. Yeah. you know, you put this in uh, another community, and it can be about any ism. And then this is the part that everybody should see. Innocence is overrated. Mm-hmm. So anybody who is a parent knows this is so dangerous, mm-hmm. and and you don't have to be a parent to know that that means that children, right? Like our little babes, are now the new battlefield for yeah. their bad ideas and the child, their child soldiers, basically. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what has happened. And you all know it so deeply because ISIS literally put AK-47s, you know, in front of those children when they were re- recruiting them, indoctrinating them. You all have known it in your lives in one way or another that may have led you to believe that you had to hate certain people. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it the anti-gay. Definitely like mm-hmm. anti gay or anti this or anti that person and um and so you all have survived it like you all have um have looked at, you have seen that indoctrination and said no in your own lives and that's why when i started seeing this seeing that principle divide us i i i saw danny again you know i saw mm. him face because He was Jewish and his family was from Israel, but that wasn't what we talked about. You know, we talked about like playing volleyball and like how we could, we played this game of like getting words into the journal as a challenge to ourselves. So one day I had to get the word shanked into the Wall Street Journal. Um, Like when you play volleyball and you shank a pass, like we would just have fun. That was like our friendship. It wasn't about our our Arab-Palestinian relations or the... What is common among the Jews and the uh, Muslim Mm. faith dialogue? It was basically like, okay, Danny, this girl's got a crush on you. Like, are you interested in her? (laughs) Like, that was our conversation. And and um, that that's humanity, and that's what everybody Mm. here believes in. And so that's that's the new battlefield. And um and I and I want to just connect the dots for you on how the Islamists have embedded themselves because that. That summer, the principal came after us, and guess what? She got on a secret committee run by the education secretary of Virginia to take on the issue of merit. That was the Trojan horse to get rid of the Asian kids at the school. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, mean, you're going to just, just, it's going to blow your mind. What's his name? His name was... Atif Carney. I looked him up, being a Nancy Drew, and he had run for political office. I looked up his political contributions, because that's what we all do, right? When we're in the battlefield. I followed the money. And where did the money go? It went just a few miles from me to this building at 500 Grove Street that I document in the book, because that is the hub of this alphabet soup of organizations that are putting the bad ideas of extremist Islamist Islam into the world. Like, there, the countries of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, now Turkey, have created this entire network that have created beachheads in Virginia government, Georgetown University, Newsweek. New York Times, MSNBC, they are promoting and perpetuating the Islamist ideas of you know regressive values. And Atif Karney was elevated to be education secretary, and mm-hmm. he was now working with the far left in this war on not only the kids from Asia, but merit and really. The fundamental doctrine in the United States of equal opportunity, and 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 sure sure enough, he was working with the guys at the mosque in, mm-hmm. Manass- in Manana- Manassas, Virginia, at Darul Noor, and what did they do to us as Muslim women when we walk in? They tell us to go to the back, right?
2: They don't no. tell. Us.
1: It's just like Masi says, not Masi- very progressive. Yeah, not progressive. You know, they align out in the streets politically with the party that says our body, our choice, but at the mosque, I don't get a choice, right? I don't get a choice to take my body to the front of the mosque. And um, and that that is how I saw in Virginia that phenomena of the islamists you know entering into the democratic party politics here in the united states that has created ilhan omar rashida talib and all these other you know just reminders to us of the worst of our religion gaining power in north america like it's it's so disturbing and you have valiantly been fighting this in canada uh, and and we all have to fight it all across the world because here at 500 Grove Street they are funding supporting and enabling the Islamist parties in countries like Tunisia Egypt Algeria Morocco Pakistan to power so mm-hmm. every yeah, everything that we are fighting, they are emboldening and and the, from the safety and protection of the freedoms that we have in the United States. And so that's that's just something that only we can see clearly because we fought them, we know them. And we uniquely have the courage and the capacity to take them on because, we come from that community, right? But don't we worry when Atif Karni came after me, Yasmin? What did he have to say about me? That I was a white supremacist, that I yeah. was an extremist. And what was the extremist organization yeah. that I belonged to? The Muslim Reform Movement. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The audacity. Right. Um,
0: So everything that you said is true. And I want to add to that, too, that we know history, that we have seen not even (laughs) this is very recent history, too, that we know how when the Islamic regime of Iran was coming into power, um, what did they do? They made alliances with the socialists and the communists and all the far lefts in, in Iran, and they formed an alliance so that they could come to power and then what did they do once they got power executed all of their allies right and that was with the help of america as well because they were during they were in their mccarthy phase of being so afraid of communists and russians and you know all of that pre Cold war stuff um so we have seen these alliances before we've seen it in We've seen it in Syria, we've seen it in Lebanon, we saw it in Egypt with President Morsi, with Obama encouraging um, President Morsi to become president there, and the Egyptian people ousting him as soon as they could. There's this really great video of this Egyptian woman, she went viral, where she was like, shut up your mouse, Obama. (laughs) Because the Egyptian people were so angry that here he was supporting a Muslim Brotherhood shill to become the president of their country, and that's the last thing in the world they wanted. So it's like we have fought these battles already. We have seen this already, this alliance of the American Democrats or progressives or far left or whatever you want to call it with Islamists around the world, and now you're seeing it in America. And it really is you know, you have to take a step back initially and be like, how did this happen? Like, how did how did these two groups think that they were going to see eye to eye when they are so different on so, they're polar opposites in many ways. But really the two of them, what they have in common is just a, a, an aggression and a hate for Western civilization. And I feel that that is really what is um connecting them at that level. And then they just ignore all the other stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. sure, you want 140 genders and we want to kill everybody who isn't straight, but (laughs) let's just not worry about that right now. You know, like,
1: (laughs) yeah, this is the, this is the next step for the the far left, right? Is the pronoun book and bye-bye binary, but I'm sure these are in the mosque library, right?
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) By by binary in the mosque library oh my god there is actual hadith about men who dress like women needing to be killed
1: yeah the gay bcs i'm sure that's you know right there in the men's section you know for that man who believes that t is for trans right i mean it's so ridiculous these same Mm -hmm. these same um, mosque leaders are the ones that call the police on us when we go into the main hall Like, that's how absurd this alliance is. We see through it. You know, this, Yasmin, you will not believe it. The daughter of the founder of Darul Hijra Mosque has now won a seat at the school board here in Fairfax County, Virginia. She didn't vote for the 9 11 resolution that honored our first responders. Her dad literally hired Anwar al the al-Qaeda imam who got killed by a drone when he finally fled the United States and guess what that mosque has preached the imam he has preached female genital mutilation
0: oh wow yeah oh wow
1: yeah and that is the alliance they have created um, unbelievable
2: Yeah,
1: you know, one of the most um, shocking moments for me was when I watched her step forward at a Fundraiser for American Muslims for Palestine when she was running for office. And I and that's when I knew in 2019 that you know they had basically infiltrated. Yeah, successfully.
0: Wow. Now I have taken way more time than I said I would, an hour more than I said I would. So I really want to open it up to everybody who's here today. I'm sure there are so many questions and comments for you. I can see the chat popping up, um, but I haven't read it. Um, So if you were one of the people that wrote in the chat, please go ahead and um, raise your hand and and, and hopefully you can just share directly with with Astra. Okay, we will start with my good friend Amir because I love and adore him. (laughs) Amir, please go ahead.
4: Hello, Yasmin. Uh, Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say start with saying how much I love you. And same for you, Azra. You guys are beacons of light and um, sometimes feels like ever-growing darkness. So just from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Um, Azra, I I wanted to ask you, I'm trying to make my question as short as possible, but uh, you know... I suppose the question is, how, how do you combat it, the wokeness? I, I think, you know, intellectually, it's people like yourself, Yasmin, uh, Douglas Murray, Sam Harris, etc. The arguments intellectually, are, it's very one-sided, but I, I, I think they're very immune to, to logic and intellectualism. So their their weapon of choice is very superior, it's using was like white supremacist and throw it at someone like yourself or, or, or Yasmin. Uh, so it's kind of an uneven fight. Mm-hmm. And intellectualism doesn't seem to, to do any harm against their cause, which then leaves the question, if not intellectualism and logic, what else?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you, Amir, for being just um, a a strong voice yourself because we so need men that stand up against this tyranny. So I'm going to show you uh, exhibit A in one of my tactics. This is a shirt that my dad um, designed for me. He he drew it for me in our fight against the wokeism. Uh, you all have seen AOC's beautiful Met gala gown so i literally put that gown in front of my dad and i said dad i want to make something like this paint it and what did i do i put here on this side all the names that we've been called they call us domestic terrorists as parent activists QAnon moms white supremacists and then on this side my dad made this beautiful heart and um and I wrote, we are mama bears. So I took that, that term that, you know, makes everybody's hearts melt of our moms and our mama bears, when unfortunately, that's at least the aspiration, even if you don't have it in reality in your life. But Amir, you know, one thing I learned was how to be a joyful warrior also in um, this effort, because I finally had other parents, you know, that were ready to Just take on the ideologues that were coming after our kids without being shamed. That was one of the first things that I learned from a Chinese-American dad named Qian Kok in New York City. He he said to me, he said, be unapologetic. And you guys probably know that Linda Sarsour has built a brand on this idea of being unapologetically Muslim, right? But her unapologetically Muslim is really racist. It's, you know, xenophobic against Jewish people also from Israel. Well, what what we decided to do was, um, you know, take on that concept of being unapologetic and uh, and it's been phenomenal. we We have been able to build this movement of parents that expose their, Like illogical ideas, I I understand that that's not going to always speak to our adversaries, but for the people in the middle, it has at least allowed them, these, you know, tyrants to be challenged. So they see us, you know, they see us at the school board meetings yelling and shouting and speaking back. The only thing that we're not doing, Yasmin, is throwing a slipper at the school board members because that that'll just give them the excuse to cuff us, right, and send us to po- the police. But but definitely um, the tactic that I've taken is to, uh, um, to laugh at the words that they throw at us, to use it in our own branding, you know, and um, and to turn their weaponization of those words against them, ridiculing them for the their use of such ridiculous ideas. And then, um, and then, you know, I think it's Massey who has really so effectively done what you've asked about, which is touch the hearts of people. And I'm just so proud of that work that she has done because it's been fearless, as you all know, not always appreciated. But wow, how do you go from being politically incorrect with Code Pink, you know, throwing spring break trips to um, Iran to becoming Time Woman of the Year? It's because you just keep touching and touching and touching the hearts of people and I agree with you completely like that we have to do that as we argue from a place of
5: logic also.
3: Amir did you want to follow up on that are you good before we move on to the next question?
4: Uh, I I guess if I may um, yeah I, I appreciate everything you're saying I suppose it's I don't want to sound blip, but someone like yourself and someone like Masi and someone like Yasmin, I appreciate that you have access to these tactics. Whereas um, with the risk of sounding solipsistic, if I do it, I get fired from my job and I lose my mortgage. Mm -hmm. And I think the vast majority of people, if we speak up, if I don't agree to do the the diversity, equity, and training courses at work, my career is over. And right. Yeah. One last thing as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, just because you touched on it. Uh, the 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 sort of intersection between Islamism and, and the walkism is very interesting. But did you also see, I think it was Dearborn School Board meeting yeah. at, at the South Middle School, uh, with the Muslims being the most vociferous voices against. teaching of especially sexualism and homosexuality in in middle school
1: yeah it was like the woke nightmare right unfolding like all of a sudden the muslims that you know they've been doing apologetics for for a couple decades are, are turning on them and um and i've talked to a lot of those parents and you know they are many of them coming from the same place that most of us would come which is hey we don't have a problem with the LGBTQ community because we shouldn't, you know, like this is of course a part of society that we have to also uh, welcome and be supportive of. But we are, we do have a problem with the inappropriate, you know, introduction of ideas at at an inappropriate age, like when the kids are three, four, or the um, keeping of secrets from parents, which is another part of this dynamic, yeah, but the thing that we have to be careful about, Mir, which is, uh, I know everybody here is going to understand, is that there is a segment of our Muslim community that is coming at it from a place of, of homophobia and transphobia and, and their own bigotry, you know, and their own control, like, because what they want to do is they don't want the LGBTQ community to approach their child about sexual issues at the age of 7 but they want to force their girl to cover her hair so they want to be able to hypersexualize their girl but you guys can't you know cuz they have their own bigotry and so i i've been really careful about that community but i do know many many amazing sincere parents from that community that are coming at it from the same you know road in the middle that most of us do and I Amir, mean, I do want to give a shout out that I completely respect and um, recognize that people must, you know, safeguard their homes and their families economically, and never would wish any risk to a person's well-being. You know, I lost my friend right already from this earth. Danny was not a cowboy; he did not go, want to go to Afghanistan. He was sitting in Karachi, um, and he he had to- he had emailed me something. He said i'm anxious to go to ang- afghanistan but i'm not anxious to die and and i don't want any of you to quote you know lose uh any of your life on this earth but i hope amir that you have a nice um burner account on twitter to uh clap back at my trolls and yasmin's trolls and <laughs> that that alone is contribution you know that alone if, if you have eight followers it's almost like more powerful than eight thousand or eighty thousand because you're just the ordinary person saying, "Wait a second! You need to back off and stop using all these slurs and names, and you don't make any sense." And and you guys speak volumes when you speak up.
0: Thank you, Astra. Thank Let's you. move on to Gina, who has been patiently waiting to be next.
2: Um. Thank you both for doing this and, um, organizing Yasmin, Um, Azra, I love you. Um, here's my question. I, um, I'm a veteran of the entertainment business. I've been here in LA for over 20 years and I run a soundstage. I've worked in everything from music to movies to you name it, I've done it. And, um, I've been for some time wanting to write about my experiences because I'm in the belly of the woke beast and I pay attention to a lot of things here in Los Angeles where I live. Um, Part of me is also very frustrated. I'm indigenous and Jewish. So one of the things I run into a lot is these people think they can speak for somebody like me. They can't, but they do like BIPOC. Right. <laughs> um, that's not a, that's sort the of thing we're, we're not. And you know, we're just not. So, you know, I've, I've been following a lot of stuff. I start and then I stop. And some of my fear is the same fears or the things that Amir has brought up that um, I don't want problems. Um, I feel like I need to start saying something because I've worked for some of the biggest entertainment companies um, on the planet, and they've been responsible in my opinion for some really bad things as far as um, portrayal of a lot of people and how we're perceived. Um, I yeah, like I could just go on and on and on, but I start and I stop because one of my fears is I don't want problems for my family. um I also don't want problems for my business, and I get a bit nervous about that, and it's weird because you know. Me going down this road and then starting and stopping, I've actually made friends with some people I never thought I would be friends with, and found that they're very nice. Um, they're they're classified as dissident, right? Um, they've been fantastic though, and they've been a far more open-minded bunch of people than I ever thought I would ever run across. And um, your book, I'm going to read it. I've got a stack of stuff to read, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just I'm like, what is the advice you would have for somebody like me? because I would like to do this. And I think it needs to get talked about, but nobody's talking about it.
1: Yeah, you know, many of our parents were in the exact same place that you were at in the summer of 2020. We have many immigrant parents that are both ingrained with the idea that you don't challenge authority. And then they also have, in Northern Virginia, realities like national, you know, national security clearances. Um, uh, visa limitations, payments that they have to make for their own mortgage. So what we did that summer is we created an organization that we literally just created on Facebook called Coalition for TJ. And what we did is we made handmade signs because we wanted to communicate that you know this was a, from a place of authenticity, and we have branded ourselves in the reality of our diversity. And I just really know that folks like yourself are shut out of conversations because your analysis may be inconvenient to the diversity, equity, inclusion you know propaganda that's being put forth in the workplace. But I almost say today, like you got to lean into your own intersectionality with these folks and Create perhaps, you know, the indigenous Jewish coalition for diversity in Hollywood. And I know I'm this is like the I I say sometimes like, we want, I want to have the BIPOC alliance against wokeism, you know. Mm -hmm. I always want to try to create things using the word for, of course, because just so that we have hope every day. But if you can find those few people, that's all it you need to have your little secret army. Um, and then and then see how it can manifest in ways that don't create conflict at the at a time when you're not wanting the conflict, you know, because you cannot force yourself into it. But I think that there's ways to speak up that are not. Just in for being canceled always it's it can be that you invite you know a bid from somebody that you know who doesn't just go with the political correctness or and i can tell you that i i'm there's folks that i'd like to introduce you to from hollywood um, that for example are from the indian community and you probably saw that the Nacho Nacho dance that they had had no Indians on the stage at the Oscars because yeah. we the Asians don't matter anymore. Like it was a it was a film about anti colonialism and they colonized the dance. It was just the absurdity of their politics, but those dancers were left out. You know they were excluded. In the Hollywood community, that they have so many studios, and um, and and so I think there's growing frustration also among folks that are in the quote intersectional communities that are being erased also, and so that's where I would hope that maybe you could build your own coalition of businesses and consultants and experts, and have your private groups if you're going to have them at first started on. We started on WhatsApp and then we got so big that we moved to Telegram. We have other chats where we have disappearing chats, you know, and we go on Signal and we have it, we have the chats disappear in a day so that folks don't have screenshots that are gonna cost them their jobs. Um, you gotta do all those things in order to create that community though. That's so important so that you don't feel isolated. Um, there's another psychologist, Pamela Pereski, who described really well to me this idea that when we have more people taking the risk, it's less risky for us as individuals then.
0: So much of what you said <clears throat> reminds me of ex-Muslims in Muslim-majority countries. So you know my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, and that's what yeah. we do. Is yeah. support ex-Muslims and Muslim majority countries. I I'm I am blown away. I mean, Lois has a comment here where she talked about how un-American it is. The very idea that taking an honest position can threaten your job, et cetera, is horrendous and un-American. Talking about disappearing chats so that it doesn't get screenshots so you don't lose your job and you know, all of these secret alliances and spreading the 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 threat so that one person isn't as, as threatened if, if there's yeah. like 50 of you speaking. All of these things, like this is surreal to me that this conversation is going on right now about Americans right. <laughs> talking about their culture and what they see is happening in their country, because Wait, this is you- really the...
1: Yeah, where yeah, go freedom. ahead. This is where freedom. Well,
0: those, you talked about freedom of speech and and yeah. and freedom of expression, and but this is Pakistan, this is Afghanistan, this is Saudi Arabia. This is this is this is shadows of that. you know what I mean? Like this is this is actually quite terrifying. Um, well, this is
1: my um this is my messaging folder on my phone, and so you can see I've got Telegram. So in you know during our conversation now, sixteen messages probably from parents. Um, I, I know from parents. I got Facebook Messenger, Truth Social, because you gotta gotta be politically diverse, right? Signal. Um, I've got WhatsApp, and then I'm very honored to be a member of several WeChat groups. <laughs> With the, most of them, most of them are in Chinese, and I cannot understand half the messages that are in this chat, but. This is exactly what you said. we're dissidents. you know we are right now in, in even in North America and the West and um, and you even you know at some of our rallies, parents have worn masks. They've used the mask mm. in order to be able to not then become uh, part of an FBI national security you know hit list of, on parents because you probably have all been watching in the news too, how we became such a threat in 2021 here in northern virginia that the democratic party used the school board association to call us the parents domestic terrorists and you guys you guys uniquely can understand why i was like uh no that's not happening i went i went to walmart and i got letters like little shiny letters got a little got to have a little bling in our movement right and I wrote I'm a mom not a domestic terrorist and literally downstairs with my camera you know I learned from Massey that the um, value of video just gave my testimonial in my kitchen of course in uh, cinematic mode you guys right because we always look better in cinematic mode and I um, and I said like forget this like I've gone to Guantanamo Bay to chase down terrorists. Like you are not going to shame us as terrorists. And and the Republicans are in charge now in the house and they're having these hearings called the weaponization of government against uh, citizens. And they found the receipts. Indeed, they targeted us as parents for political purposes and uh, and it's been exposed and, you know, Parents were arrested at school board rallies, but we didn't back down. I mean, it's just unconscionable, just like you said, Yasmin, that we should have to go to such ends to exercise free speech. But I- I'm with all of you in knowing, you know, the the hurdles that you face, but y- you can figure it out in using these tricks that we've got today to do it safely.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe ask questions, Gina, rather than making statements too. I love all the advice that Astra gave about, you know, make contracts and alliances with people that are, that, you know, already. Um, But having conversations with people who you want to maybe open their minds to different perspectives. Um, Yeah. Ask questions versus making statements so that they can't be used against you. And I wanted to add as well, Sorry, Gina. Sure. just one, one um, more little tiny yeah. nugget of, of, of information here is I wanted to share that women in Saudi Arabia who were driving when there was a ban against women driving in Saudi Arabia were called domestic terrorists and they were imprisoned under domestic terrorism charges. Just wanted to say that. Sorry, Gina, go ahead. Yeah.
2: But one other question. Um. One of my other questions for you, Astra, is a lot of these woke ideologies are... They're, you're right. They are. They're religions. They're, they are. You know, if you break it down the way that you would look at a religion, that's what it is at this point. Um, what I don't understand is why nobody is legally challenging them, because, you know, if you go into a school, you go into a workplace, you're not allowed to preach Jesus Christ or any of that kind of stuff, because that's something you do in your own time and you go to your own places to do that. That's fine. But for some reason, nobody's doing that. And I don't understand why I'm not seeing anybody legally. I'm starting to see a little bit at some of the colleges and stuff, but I, and again, I don't know how things work in Canada or the UK, but um, these are ideologies of belief at this point. And I don't believe in that. So I have a right to not believe in that. Just like I have a right to not to believe in whatever. So, you know, again, you believe in things, you go somewhere to believe in them at home, church, mosque, temple, wherever you go do these things. I I just, I'm like surprised that there's not a lot more effort put into trying to challenge some of this stuff on a, like a legal level. And I don't know if you know anybody that's doing that or not.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, lawfare is a new term that I've learned over these last three years. I love it. I, Yasmeen, breaking the news here that I, at the age, the youthful age of 57, am dedicated now to go to law school because if Kim Kardashian can do it, I can do it. Um, I want to do it because you know, when I started challenging the mosque segregation, I was like, why is this even legally allowed? Well, Mm. they use the establishment clause, you know, they use freedom of religion in this country to practice their gender apartheid. And they get these, um, these shields Our America's freedoms allow these shields. And so unfortunately, what's happened is all this indoctrination i mean critical race theory is uh racism taught in law schools you know the one of the ideologues of it says literally that one remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination that's the prophet ibram x kendi that's written this Mm -hmm. book how to be an anti-racist and the problem is that this is protected speech right this is free speech on on uh, for for them, just like we couldn't go after so many of these ridiculous ideologues in our Muslim community, you know, that were' pushing what we knew was extremist ideas. well the the way our um our um, opening that we're using uh, to fight in the courts is the Fourteenth Amendment, which, I didn't even know about, I just enjoyed its benefits for most of my life, but in the summer of 2020, I learned about the 14th amendment and that 14th amendment in the United States is about equal opportunity under the law. And when you say that we are going to change admissions to a school with the intention of dropping one race, that is not the 14th amendment in practice. And we went to court. We had this nonprofit group called Pacific Legal Foundation represent that group. Remember I told you in the summer of 2020, we just created a group. There were five parents coalition for TJ. Well, there is a case now that is gonna be um, that is gonna be the Brown versus board of education case for the 21st century. It's coalition for TJ versus Fairfax County school board. And we won, we won a federal court decision by this judge in Alexandria, Virginia. And this is what's going to freak you guys out. Alexandria, Virginia is the court that has been known as the anti-terrorism court in the United States because so many of our Muslim extremists have run through Northern Virginia. The mosque that... Practiced, you know, and taught female genital mutilation. It's called the 9-11 mosque because the hijackers prayed there. So this court in Alexandria, Virginia, has put so many guys in jail, including a guy for Al-Qaeda propaganda, right? And so in that court, we won this decision last year that ruled that the new admissions policy is unconstitutional, it's a violation of the 14th Amendment, and it's racist against Asians we're going to lose on appeal because the school board is so stubborn that they're appealing the case. But then when we lose, because it's a um, it's a panel that is clearly against us, we're going to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And you guys are probably following a case of uh, students for fair admission versus Harvard. That case is about Critical race theory being practiced as racism against Asian kids in higher education admissions, and and those are the ways that we're trying to chip away at their ideology of inequality. Uh, but but as Amir said, you know they're bringing it in with these fancy words like equity and diversity and. Um, and trying to fool people. And so the only way we can win in court I think is by showing how the equal opportunity of America or Canada is being violated by the practices and policies that they are putting in place because of the ideology of their uh their really, you know, wrong and misdirected religion um i don't think we'll ever be able to go after just the religion of this ideology because it's in a it's a business it's a empire and we what we have to do is go after their policy and practices just like everybody else um when when you go after um islamic extremism you go after them when they become violent right when they mm-hmm. you know, fight violence things like that and and um, and, and that's the tactic I think we're gonna have to take in court of law against these extremists.
0: Thank you, Astra. You good with that, Gina? Let's move on to the next person. Awesome. Okay, Bart, please unmute yourself.
3: Hey, thanks for hosting this. Big fans of both of you, appreciate all your courage and tact and warmth And it can't be easy. It's very inspirational. Okay. Uh, I want to change the topic a little bit about blasphemy laws and the recent um, uh, occurrence in the UK, Wakefield, UK, with a 14-year-old. I'm sure most were well aware. Um, did either of you um, uh, see the ensuing uh, Sharia law trial uh, struggle session at the mosque at least that week? Quite something. Yes. I don't know if this happens regularly. Uh, I don't think it's ever happened in Canada, um, but the, um, political Islam seems to have, and cultural Islam seems to have a, a hold in the UK. Just, I guess my question is, how, how concerned should Western countries be about blasphemy um, uh, laws? Um, you know, if you can't critique a thing, then it can never be improved. And maybe that's part of the problem, right? Um, so, I don't know, like, I, I kind of have concerns about being able to, to uh, support those reformers, you know, like yourself and Raquel Raz and all these people who are trying to be reasonable. Right. Um, because what happens in, in Wakefield was not reasonable, and if anyone hasn't seen it, um, find out the, the name of the mosque and go to their Facebook website, that's the only place I could find the whole, whole hour-long um, session other than you know but here and there I quit but anyway your thoughts
1: thanks yeah no I followed it really closely and I think that case is really important because it reveals the woke army in K through 12 education just like we have experienced in the United States if people don't know about this case it was a boy who was perhaps on the spectrum with related to autism and He said something that was interpreted as, quote, blasphemous by the ideologues, you know, in Islam. It was a um, moment to shame the boy, to shame the school, and to, you know, win in this oppression Olympics. Like, we are now in the oppression matrix, and a boy with autism or disability is now below the a Muslim man who has been offended by something that this young boy has said and the poor boy's mother joined in he this. Scuffed,
0: he scuffed a Quran. Oh yeah. what it was. Yes. Yes. It was a Quran that was, I mean, you had to, it, it was, it's comical. Yeah. How they, they went over the just exaggerating or Oh, it has been defaced. Yeah. It's a terrible, dark day. Blah blah blah. And then you see the Quran. It's like some of the pages <laughs> are a little right. bit folded or something. Like you, they had to like circle it in the pictures to show oh you, God. like this is the.
1: Yeah. the yeah, like, this is what some like, teenage boy did to a book. Like, calm yeah, like, down. Like my Qurans are, um, you know, one, two, three, four fifth shelf below, right from the top that, that, as you all know, oh my gosh, I'm violating the rule that it has to be at the top, the, the, um, the highest place in the room. Right. Like it's so Mm -hmm. ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I, I had that same kind of struggle session when my mom and I would go into the mosque in the front door, they, they had a, um, they had a hearing to ban me from the mosque. And um, they literally pulled names that were of the men that were going to be on my Sharia um court out of a hat. And my mother just went with me and just laughed at them. And um, and they were trying to intimidate me, but that's what they're doing with this family and not but the message
0: that was, poor woman, his mother had to sit there with the hijab on. yeah. Yeah. And be admonished by all of these men. And there were UK police officers sitting along with these men nodding along with these with these atrocious things that these men were saying. They're 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 attacking a young boy. The boy was receiving death threats and the people who sent him death threats were spoken to. They had conversations with them. Yet this boy was suspended from the school because he yeah. scuffed a book,
1: yeah, and that's where the politics of this woke army are you know is entering into a school system and creating a shaming culture, you know, they're using their tactics of shame, they put a, like, dun- they, they put a virtual dunce cap on the kid, you know, that, that was something that we were supposed to have gotten rid of decades ago, but now they think that it's okay to shame kids, and in this case, it was a kid for being, quote, Islamophobic, another day, it's going to be a kid for being, you know, transphobic, another day, it's going to be a kid who dared to, you know, um, just say, I'm not going to, play the privilege bingo game, you know, that they're going to be mm-hmm. reprimanded. I mean, the nobody is safe from this, um, this character assassination campaign that has happened and is a tactic of intimidation. I know that that puts fear, like some of the conversation we've already had, being the target of the character assassination campaign makes people fear speaking out. But when we don't speak out, people have to endure ridiculous, you know, humiliation like this and alone. Yeah. And I, I feel what you must have felt. Yes. I mean, just, just such sadness that of course that's where people have to make choices, which is, I don't believe your system, you know, and that's the hard part of a family's decision and the intimidation that they do but what to the question you can you can guarantee that everything that we've been experiencing has created that struggle session and the and the belief that those mosque men could do put a family through this and it will be used as inspiration to intimidate more people
3: mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I saw, I
1: saw go
0: ahead, Bart. I
3: saw Chilling that the, um, the imam who was um, hosting the struggle session, the, um, um, you know, a failed threat about, you know, Islam will never be disrespected in any city, in any country. We will use our bodies to to ensure this doesn't happen. It was like, are we eating this up in the West? Like, are we just letting this fly while the mom's sitting over there cringing and, and the NP? went to go visit and another imam from the mosque went to go to the kid's house to because he said he, he did some research on his Islam and and you know gained some knowledge and like was, was testing him and uh, then the imam who was running the session kept on referring to like as long as the whole situation brought you closer to Islam then all is well that was a general vibe and I was like holy crap and I like hmm. need to like recognize it
1: yeah it's the Salem witch trials all over again, and they'll do yes. it to everyone. Yes, that's exactly what it is.
0: And going back to your point, Astra, about the alliance between these two groups, they're both using bottom-up blasphemy laws. They already exist, Bart. Those blasphemy laws are already there. They're not top-down like they would be in Iran, but they are certainly bottom-up, just like with... Islamophobia is being thrown at you and people are afraid and the same thing happens on the left as well where you're going to have all sorts of slurs oh you're racist you're xenophobic you're transphobic you're whatever again it's to silence people it's the witch trials like you said Asra this is how they keep control over everybody back to Gina's comment about how can I how can I even speak or Amir's comment how can I even speak without having this fear of losing my my career or not being able to pay my mortgage. That's what they have, these blasphemy laws already exist. You cannot blaspheme in speaking up against either one of these ideologies. Um, And the thing is about this, with it being bottom up like that, is that we still have an ability to fight back. We can still make these decisions. You know, like we're not gonna be thrown in prison like you would if you were in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. We're not going to get, you know, executed or beheaded and hung from a crane. But we are going to be taking risks, but we have to take calculated risks. We just have to. I've spoken to so many teachers in schools in the UK and in Canada. In Canada, we have an actual Islamophobia um, officer at the federal government level who is investigating things now, like how our charities, we've had, I I can't even tell you how many charities in Canada have been linked to terrorism. They take the money and they give it towards terrorist activities. And so now they're looking into that and they're saying, is this Islamophobic why do you keep on not allowing these charities to give money to these terrorist organizations? Why do you keep on investigating Muslims? It must be because you're Islamophobic. So they're finding all of these ways to basically they're, they're finding ways to elevate themselves. They're finding ways to, to get stronger and to grow more um, through using these blasphemy slurs. And so we have to let it roll off our backs and we we have to just continue to push little bits at a time, carefully, like I said, calculated risks. But the last thing in the world that we can do right now is to just appease and to capitulate. My God, does that make my blood boil when I see people in the West doing that? Like all those people nodding along as this poor woman is sitting there in hijab having to apologize. You know, like a like a Shia self-flagellating. Oh my God, my son scuffed a book. Like you people are all insane. And this poor woman, like I just, I I it's it, it it this is happening in the United Kingdom. Like, where are your spines? Do you have spines? We have to be able to speak up. We have to be able to say no. I know that it's dangerous. And then you have to be careful, but you must, you cannot be complicit. And you certainly cannot capitulate the way that we're seeing everybody in the West capitulate. So I just stepped
1: away because I wanted to show you guys um, the work that it takes. Sometimes like this is, I'm a reporter, right? An investigative reporter. What happened for me is I was the target of that kind of um, blasphemy law, you know, informal, like you said, Yasmeen. it. It was that I was uh, shaming Islam by daring to say that it was sexist to relegate women to second-class conditions in the mosque, and they started calling me Islamophobic, and they um, called me all sorts of slurs. Like Zionist media whore was my favorite, um, wow. because they tried to slut shame me and also, you know, brand me with the Israel um, hate. Well this is what I did, you guys. And this is the um, kind of network that we face. This is literally the (laughs) network right there of the people that I ended up, again, you can see them, all these names. I know all I'm missing is the thread, thread on the wall, but it's, it's a, it's a network that has put this um, phenomena of blasphemy as a weapon. And now they have, as you know, anti-Islamophobia day by the UN, Mm -hmm. promoted promoted by who? Who went to the UN? It was Imran Khan, you know, one of the prime ministers of Pakistan before he lost power, former cricket player, um, who said- What a joke. Yeah, who said we have to make this a day. And meanwhile, they are allowing extremism within their community against Jews, Israel, Christians, Hindus, India, a, a million, um, you know, haters, and other Muslims as well. These Shias, uh, a, a Sunni Muslim feminist, you know, everybody and everything. And so um, we just got to expose it, call it out, and and do it in whichever way you're comfortable, you know, whether it's an anonymous Twitter account or a letter to the editor, but we need your voices, every single person, because otherwise just just use as your North Star, the image of that mom sitting there, you know, being humiliated Mm -hmm. in the name of Islam.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you so much, Astra.
0: Bart, are you good with that response? Did you wanna follow up? You're awesome, okay, great. Um, so I asked Asra to give me an hour of her time and she has given me two hours already. So thank you so much, Asra. I really appreciate that. I just want to make sure that anybody who had anything to ask Asra or anything to say to her has had an opportunity to do so um, before I pass the mic on to Asra for her final comments. Mohand, please.
5: Thank you very much ladies for the work that you're doing. Um, I love you both. I know Yasmin, I had the pleasure of meeting Yasmin last summer. I followed you for many years on Facebook when I was on Facebook, Asra, but uh, I'm no longer on Facebook. So I know who, who you are somewhat as well. Thank you for being the voice for those that have been silenced. And thank you for giving hope for those that don't have in their own countries or no matter where they are. Um, I know the fight that you are carrying is a difficult one because you're fighting basically against three uh, major things. One of them being money. Uh, You know, the uh, Gulf countries and Iran shovel a lot of money to discredit the types of people courageous like you that are trying to uh, bring about the truth. Uh, you're fighting against governments, that the Islamists, and now the woke as well, and thank you for making that parallel, which I never thought about, but uh, you're absolutely right, Asra, that the, the, the militants of those two ideologies squat the governments and through antirism get elected into positions where they can obviously sow their seeds of hate, and of course, last but not least, the media. We're fighting the media. I live in Montreal, Canada. Right now I'm in Florida because it's a little bit too cold up north, (laughs) but, uh, you know, um, my question is, how can we, how can we how can you, how can we, those that are interested in doing something, how can we federate across the borders so that our voices are united, so that our forces carry a bit more than they do right now? Because we, we, we seem to be doing a tremendous amount of work, but in cells. And of course it's effective to a certain point, but if we look at the way these ideologies are progressing. Uh, they're obviously making a lot, a lot of uh, headway compared to us. Um, one example, um, our uh, prime minister, which I like to call selfie first, uh, mm-hmm. because he's, he's, a, he's an idiot, he's a, a, a communitarist and uh, completely sold to wokeism because at one point when he was maybe 20 or something, he painted his face black and he just can't stop crying every time somebody, somebody brings anything up uh, of that sort. So even though, as has been said, we do have in Canada laws for anti-blasphemy laws, he was convinced by his, some of his close advisors uh, that are Islamists to uh, uh, appoint a an anti-Islamophobia counselor to the tune of nearly $200,000 is gonna to cost to Canadians. And this lady, this lady has expressly um, said many times, her hate for non-Muslims. And even though we as a group, uh, we wrote a petition, and there's even an official petition at the, uh, At the government level, Yasmin, you signed it as well. Um, You know, these types of actions by governments, the type of actions by media, again, as I said, you know, for for example, if we talk of a country, a Muslim country, if there's an article about Algeria or Tunisia, and they need to show a woman, you can bet 99.9% of the time, it's going to be a woman with a hijab. Even though in Canada, there is less than 5% of Muslim women or that come from Muslim countries that actually wear a hijab or a niqab or something. So it, 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 it's, sometimes it is discouraging to see that we cannot come together and make, um, and, and, and unite our fights across borders because we can't do it within a country, you know? Right now, in the U.S., for example, we, you know they are squatting the government now, right? With the, with the help of the Democrats, such as uh, you know the, you call them the left, the left, uh, the left, democrat, the left. What did you call them? The left, uh, the, the, the radical left. Okay, such as uh, um, Ocasio Cortez and etc. So. We need to do something across borders. It just cannot be just local. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. Thank yeah. you. Tell him yeah.
1: about clarity, Astra. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking about was, you know, I I feel exactly what you have felt. I have, um, you know, been in this battle since the uh, spring then of 2002. And it is oftentimes... The, feels like we're up against a network and a machine, and it is truly well funded. But here we are, some 22 decades later, and we have come together. I went with Yasmin and Muslim reformers like Zudi Jasser and Raheel Raza to a conference that we had in Salzburg, Austria, a place that I had never gone before. And there in this protected space because um, this is what we had. we had you know an imam from France who faces death threats. we had a, um, a author from Germany who faces death threats, a woman who started a mosque uh, that is you know led by women in Germany who faces death threats. Ayan Hersi Ali was there who faces death threats and we came together. And uh, we were the it was the first meeting of this new coalition that's called Clarity, and the intention of it is to stand up to the Islamist extremist threat that we all face in the world. And there, two decades after I had begun my own journey, I met new friends, you know, in the struggle—people that I didn't know because of language barriers that we've got, or just geography, and. Clarity is one of those ways that you can join to then expand and and amplify our ideas. Where we are um, mostly volunteer led in this effort and the movement may be slow, but it is gonna be consistent just as we have been for the last two decades. So the website, can you give me the website name again? ClarityCoalition.org. And there is
0: a button there called Join Us, and just click on that and sign up to join us.
1: Yeah. And I just will give you one moment from that conference that shall be like a historical reminder of the moment that we're in. In that building that was considered, you know, prize property, the Nazis. Had built their headquarters during their siege on Europe and their siege on the Jewish people, and so in the main dining room where we sat with people who were Jewish, Christian, atheist, ex-Muslim, Muslim, uh, we challenged broke bread together. Yeah. yeah, we broke bread. We listened to music together. We drank wine together. That's the first, um, you know, uh, reform that I would do as a Muslim reformer. Have Muslims have a glass of wine just to chill out. Um, <laughs> the extremists, you know, and uh, and it was just remarkable, you guys, because Ayan said it then that you know the world had to come together to defeat Nazism, an ideology of another ism, decades ago. And we have to do the same related to Islamism. We have to challenge its nexus with wokeism and um, and history will reveal that we're on the correct side of history. So join us if you will, because it is easier and better with kindred spirits. You can share as much as you want to publicly. You can just support us privately. Um, amplify, retweet a message. That's profound contribution right there. Do a reply, quote, tweet, and wow, you've just you know won the lottery in contribution. It's, it's so small, the contributions that we have to make sometimes to make a difference. But that coalition, I think, offers us one path to building just like what you're talking about, a global movement.
5: Thank you.
0: Thank you. And we are from across the globe, Mohand. And um, as Asra said, we're from all different identities, all different ethnicities, all different backgrounds, religious or otherwise. And we're all coming together with one united goal. And even if, as individuals, you know, as a mom, I'm going to go ahead and quote a Disney movie now in a bug's life there was the moment when the ants were afraid of the crickets and the crickets were saying, if only these ants figured out, like we don't want them to figure out that they outnumber us a hundred to one, because that's their power. Like one little ant can't do anything on his own, but together, that's when we're really going to see uh, a difference. And so I hope that you will join us. And I'm glad that you did ask that question because it gave us or, uh, and I an opportunity to talk about, um, that coalition that is just budding, but we expect it to grow bigger and bigger very quickly.
5: Thank you. I will certainly join. Great, thank awesome. you. Awesome. Thank you.
0: So, Aster, before I let you go, um, please, any last words for us? Any um you know, words of advice. You've been through so much. You've accomplished so much. I know you have so much wisdom to share. Um, or if you just want to let people know where they can get your book, where they can follow you, how can we continue to learn from you?
1: Yeah, and and, and um, in this exchange, I will always learn from all of you. I have an open DM on Twitter at Asra Nomani. My email is there. I've even added my phone number, you guys, and nobody calls. Um, So please feel free to reach out. Send me a tip. Um, My Twitter handle is at Asra My email address is asra at asranamani.com. And please go to Amazon to get the book because it is the work of my life as a reformer and as an activist to embolden you, you know, to... Prevent you from having to go through all of the same suffering, so that I can share the lessons learned, and and impart upon you the stories that I hope will give you courage to act in whichever way you wish. One of the greatest, greatest principles that I learned from my mom mm-hmm. was um, to live without shame. You know and. It has taken me my lifetime to really lean into that. The estrogen has dropped, which is a lovely part of aging also, along with the wisdom highlights, which we began our conversation. <laughs> um, I um, don't know what I would do without, you know, my parents and their love and support. And however you can find that love and support, whether it's, you know, in your um what what we call you know our intentional families that we create do use that to know that you're not alone in all these efforts support Yasmin please in all of her efforts amplify her voice so that she can build the movement even stronger because the work that she's doing is the work of building an alternative universe you know and that's so important To give people a different path and a different choice. I um, will just end with this little story that these men, they came after me for all those years when I was going into the mosque with my mom. They were the establishment. They were the alphabet soup of organizations you know, headquartered down the road from me here at 500 Grove Street. And I ended up, you will see chronicled in the book, filing a lawsuit against the anonymous character assassins. And when I unmask them, which what you will read in the book is, I've got the receipts that they were the leaders of this organization, the Council on American Islamic Relations, that has fooled the West into thinking that it's a civil rights group when it's actually a front organization for the ideology that we all oppose. So I just wanted to share that story with you because it did take the two decades, you know, to confront them, to put this book out into the world. And I had my first book reading on the sidewalk outside their headquarters in the shadow of the Capitol here in Washington, D.C. It was a book reading (laughs) my own camera, filming myself and cars here and there. So we can do it. Like we're all just individual human spirits, but collectively Yasmin is with me. I know that my mom is with me. You all are with me. It, is what will change the world. It will change your lives. It will change the lives of generations to come. And the fact that you're even here is part of your resistance, you know, to this tyranny that they are trying to impose on our world. So keep building this community. And uh, and definitely, I'm going to be the mattress discounter place now. Go on Amazon and give the book a five-star review because. My haters are trying to use algorithm against me, but mm-hmm. we have to, you know, that's your way in all of these forms and all of these formats that even anonymous yourselves or, um, or uh, you know, un- unspoken by name, you are speaking loudly and clearly so know that each one of you is making a difference like feel no shame at all if you feel a limit in what you can do because each action of yours challenges their tyranny and that's the ultimate path that we're going to have to take to prevail and to win and we will win because uh, I don't I don't I'm not in it for anything but to win it and we will win
0: beautifully said thank you so much astra you've already got some uh, some books sold here in the chat people have been ordering it as they were chatting with you right now um and other people are already in the middle of reading of it reading it and so we look forward to having you back in a book reading just as you were talking about your book reading on the sidewalk we should do that. I'm going to have like my first forgotten feminist. You're not a forgotten feminist at all, but it's the name of my podcast. Um, but want- we're going to have a book club where we're all going to read it. And then we'll invite you back where you can um, talk to us about the book and answer some questions. Oh,
1: well, I think this is, your title is really appropriate, even for somebody like myself that might, you know, have a book out or this or that because they want me to be forgotten you know that is they want to discredit those of us that are out succeeding in the court of public opinion and they turn us from heroes into zeros you know because they want us erased and and so this um, affirmation you can't even know how much it means to me to 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 be seen in my community, you know, to have my words appreciated and my efforts appreciated in the community because we're, we're the, um, you know, the, the, that which they want to make invisible. So Mm -hmm. this, um, you know, it means so much to me. I can't even begin to tell you. It really means so much to me to have uh, a conversation with people who are from my community and those that support us uh, because our community would like to erase all of us and, and we're not going to go away.
0: No, nope, absolutely not. Love it. Thank you so much, Asraf. Really well said. Very inspiring. So gracious of you to share so much of your time with us. Thank you everyone for joining us here today and uh, we'll see you all at the next Forgotten Feminists. Take Thank you, care. First, bye-bye.
5: bye-bye.